<laughs> page one, paragraph one. That is the evil laugh of a person who just made me read an entire book about fossils. <laughs> the No, the OG fossils. The OG fossils, yes, absolutely. I mean, I feel like prior to this book... There were no fossils. There were no fossils on the page. I agree. I agree. This is... This is like the big bang of fossils, maybe. Yes, exactly. The reason why you don't like fossils is because no one writes fossils like this. Look, it's a lot of fossils. I definitely... I did skim teeth. Skimmed over a lot of, like, Ice Age versus Big Flood talk the same way. I don't even I remember skim that part. Over, I skim over, like, too. the four humors or, you know, why it's important to wash your hands or whatever. Hey, listen, I get it. I get it. And we're going to get into it. Oh, yeah. First of all, welcome, everyone, to Fate of Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I read romance novels and I write them. I'm Jennifer Prokop. I am a romance reader, critic, and editor, avowed fossil lover. Kidding. I'm not in. I'm not that last thing. Um, I'm the other ones. And we're gonna get into why we talk why we started talking about fossils. Some of you know, some of you don't. <laughs> but we're gonna learn today. Um, this week we read Amanda Quick's Ravished. And it was as much of a delight for me now as it was when I read it the first time in 1996. Is it 1996? I thought it was 1992. Well, yes, but I read it in college. You read it later. I can okay. remember reading this book in college and being like, blue stockings are the tits. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Fair. I don't, I remember reading these books. I don't have like a vivid memory of reading. Like, you know what? It's not like tagged to like a, I was in this place or whatever. No, but these books with the covers. Oh, yeah. Scripty font and mm-hmm. the pastels and the so Amanda Quick yeah began her time <laughs> well she began her time as Stephanie James I think and Jane Castle and Jane well she okay she's Jane Ann Krentz we all we I mean it's hard to sort of see she's Jane Ann Krentz and Amanda Quick Jane Ann Krentz is the contemporary author and that's her real name mm-hmm. and then there's Amanda Quick who is the historical version of the Jane Ann Krentz, mm-hmm. historical flavor. And then there is Jane Castle. If you'll remember from our Sandra Brown episode, these authors all wrote for different publishers, and they all had different pen names for different publishers. So mm. I think some of the early ones were probably more like, I think Stephanie James was Silhouette. I think Jane Castle was Harlequin or whatever. Well, Stephanie yeah. James was Silhouette number one. So, yeah, so she started fresh with them. Yeah, so I think some of those pen names probably were dependent on, because, you know, contemporary. She was writing category romance, because that's what but everybody's Jane doing. But Jane Castle did do yes. those space books. Yes, yeah, Starfire The OG space books. Yeah. So I think some of, and then, you know, it's really interesting because now... She mostly writes as Jane Ann Krenz. But even this book, like, unlike Sandra Brown, where all of her old books have been, like, retitled, like, they have the same titles, but now say Sandra Brown. These books, when you go to Amazon, still say Amanda Quick. Well, I think that's because Amanda Quick, it, 
is Amanda Quick. I mean, it's a different kind of thing than all those old... When you talk about Sandra Brown and Rachel Ryan and Erin Sinclair, the the other um, pseudonyms that she... Or not the other, but the pseudonyms that she used, um, which she talked about a little bit in our Trailblazers episode with her. Mm -hmm. Those names weren't as known as Amanda Quick. When you find... Jamie Krenz has made lightning strike a million times, times, right? I mean, it's J.D. Robb and Nora Roberts, right? Right. There's a sense of Amanda Quick has her own identity in historicals. Right. And so why would you gum it up by changing the name? Literally, the the legend is, and I mean, I guess it's not a legend because I think it's true, when Julia Quinn chose her pen name— she chose Quinn so that she would be next to Quick on the shelf. Which is a good move. Very I smart. mean, we've all done that in sure. some way or another. Like, really made a th- You are really a lot looking of us to be next to it. Debbie Maycomber. <laughs> Sorry. Well, as you know, we are so similar. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. She's still writing books as Amanda Quick, right? Like, she has a whole new series of, his- like, recent series of historicals that have gorgeous covers that are all mm-hmm. set in, like, uh, the 1920s. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is also, she's kind of kept those. She's a legend. She's a legend. Well, and when you read this, you're going to know why. Yeah. I mean, so here we are. We're reading Ravished. It's part of a series of these one-word titles. Yes. Ravished. Um, Each one as delicious as the next. Surrender. Yeah, there's, I'm trying, Rendezvous. Rendezvous, Yeah. Um, so you can go and read all the other books in the series and you will be equally as delighted as you were here. And I had a lot of thoughts while I was reading this Mm -hmm. that were unrelated to fossils because I feel like in so many ways, this is one of those books that changed historicals. Yes. Or maybe it's not this book, but this, this series, this time period, this woman kind of did a number on historicals in a very cool way. Um, so I want to talk about the blue stocking because I feel like Harriet is primordial blue stocking. Was this, before we go, I guess, into this, was this the first Amanda Quick book then? Ravish is the fifth mm-hmm. Amanda Quick book. And like, I don't know, I'm going to guess the 25th or 30th. Jane Ann Krentz book. I mean, a lot of books have have happened here. Oh, because here's a list of all of her. She wrote as Jane Bentley, Jane Castle, Amanda Glass, Stephanie James, Jane Ann Krentz, and Jane Taylor. I mean, right. I don't know how you keep that straight. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm assuming your publisher did. I mean, all the, the, the Amanda Quicks were at least all the historicals. Yeah. So this is the original, I mean... This is the original kind of blue stockingy, yes. questy, like um, you know. I'm going to introduce the word that you and I have discussed before, which is romp. Very rompy. I had forgotten how much happens in this. Yes, book. and I think that reason part of that's important is because this doesn't mean like this has a very specific meaning in historical. A woman, I think, who writes 
romp a rompy book like this it currently is Lenora Bell is an example so you know kind of where like literally people are like ducking in hedges and you know running around <laughs> with carriages and <laughs> tucking under things and, yeah. and that to me is like the hallmark of like one of these romps so I think it's like there's a lot of things going on here that I feel were really like introduced in this series by Amanda Quick. Yes, because prior to this, the hallmark, and this is not, listen, for those of you who are new to us, we, Jen and I, talk a lot about the history of the genre, and we talk a lot about what was happening prior or what mm-hmm, books right. kind of were mo- were texts that mark a movement. And I want to just say, for the record, that when we say a text marks a movement, it's not that text, necessarily. It's sort of a hallmark text of the shift. Prior to this, largely, historicals were big romantic adventures. And this is adventure-y. It's like a smattering of adventure, a seasoning of adventure. But there's not like, and now we're on a ship sailing across an ocean. And now we're, you know, at a, and we're not, and now we're going to war. And Uh, the battalions are marching. I mean, that shit predates this. Yeah, the the difference between an adventure and a romp is pacing. And what I mean by that is, like, one of the things I texted Sarah as I was reading this is, we talked about Gentle Rogue in season two. And, Mm. like, you and I had a really funny moment where we, like, couldn't believe that they didn't meet until chapter 10. And you and I were like, this isn't how this should work. Well, McNaught is famous for this, where you have to go 100 pages before they're together on the page. And this would have, and this is two years later, and would have felt like such a sea change because you don't even get the letter. So the way the book opens, essentially, with him walking in on her, studying her fossils at her table. And there is no lead up at all. It's like, boom, they are on page together on page one. And so one of the things about like that rompy feeling is just how quick it is out of the gates and how fast the set pieces change. Yes. As opposed to leading up to a big ocean boom, voyage. Boom, boom, boom. I felt like I felt there's a certain amount of Lord of Scoundrels feeling in this. And I don't mean that. I mean, obviously the writing is completely different. The story is completely different. Mm-hmm. But what I mean by that is that if you remember back when we read Lord of Scoundrels, there comes a point about, I don't know, halfway through the book where you can't really, an entire book has happened. Yes. And you still have half a book left. In this book, I had that moment and I marked it on page 98 where I was like, this, an entire book has happened. The acts are so clear. Exactly. So let's start, let's you know, 15 minutes in, why don't we do a real quick plot summary and then we'll talk about it. So Harriet is our heroine. She is a dedicated fossil hunter and an old, on her way to old maiddom and she's happy about it. Yeah, she's she lives, totally fine. She's like 25 or 26, lives with her younger sister and an aunt. And they live in some little English They live village. in a rectory. They, her yes. father was the rector on this, in this rectory, um, in this parish on the land owned by an earl. And she has discovered that there are brigands about. 
<laughs> thieves, right? Well, she's pissed. She's pissed because they are hiding stolen goods in a cave that she would like to explore for fossils. Because fossils. Because fossils. And that's not, these are legitimate, these are real fossils, <laughs> not metaphorical fossils. We'll talk about that in a minute. So she <laughs> writes a very sternly worded letter. To yes, she couldn't. She asked to speak to the manager. Yes, <laughs> and insists that his name's uh, Gideon Saint Justin, right? The the Viscount. P.S. Can we talk about Gideon? That's a oh. great romance novel hero name. <laughs> Seriously, bring back Gideon. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm putting it on my list. <laughs> he rolls up and basically is like, "No one talks to me like this." And she's like, "But don't you want to solve the problem?" Well, she basically of the thieves summons the- him. Yeah. It's the best. It is the best. And you know what I love? We never get the letter. No. He refers and to because it. what's great is on page one, she summons him and that jerk comes. Yes. He's like, I have been summoned. I've been summoned. <laughs> I was apparently right. And he doesn't and even that really know sets, why. I mean, yeah. it sets the tone for the, for the whole fucking book, that first so page. Yes. So she says, you got to figure out who's hiding, like, stolen goods in the cave so I can go discover some fossils. And... Um, the the whole first act is the discovery of who's, you know, kind of who's yeah. behind it. Yeah. Page 100, that's over. We that's know over. who did it. Second act is going to London. Third act is return to find, like, the ultimate bad guy. There are easily three romance novels in this, ro- in this <laughs> book. Yes. And what's wild about it, I really was, I paused at, on page 98 when they reveal who the person is mm-hmm. who's running the, like, stolen goods through the caves or whatever. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, that's, in current day, in 2021, that is enough yeah. for a full romance novel, which might be why romance novels feel slower yeah. these days. Because Jane Ann Krentz said, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I have more to do. <laughs> Listen, I would also like to point out that I, like, and we talked about this before when you talked about Indigo, like, books use romance, historical romance, all romances, I guess, traditionally published used to be hotter. They are kissing at 15% and have done the deed by 50%. Okay. And I was like, okay. I mean, I have things to say about kissing <laughs> oh. at 15%. I, look, I have a card. I'm have, have <laughs> an index notes. card. <laughs> look, I have notes. Wait, so, are we done? I think that's the summary. It's fine. So yeah, okay. They bone in a cave, and oh, then there's, on a, we're we're gonna come back to boning in a cave on a, on a stack of sex. I mean, name is destiny. <laughs> so so the um you so they bone in a cave, and then of course Gideon is a gentleman, of course, and a scholar. Not a scholar. She's a scholar, um, but he's a gentleman, and he says, "Well, now we have to get married," which is one of my favorite things oh, for God, hero yes. to say. Right, and she says. We're not getting married, which is my favorite thing for heroine to say in that moment. And yes. then, of course, she's totally wrong. And so then she has to go to London to figure out how to be a wife to yes. a girl because that sure. was not in the cards. And then shenanigans. Yes. I mean, really, this. That's it. That's a shenanigans. Plot. Shenanigans <laughs> is the plot. Fossil shenanigans. It doesn't matter. I mean, doesn't it, matter. it doesn't matter. It's just so, there's, first of all, there's just too much. We can't, there's too much to sum up. Yes. Fine heaving bosoms. They'll do it for you. <laughs> What's the part in The Princess Bride where he's like, it's too much. I sum up. Like, that's what we just <laughs> yeah. had. We're sponsored this week by Radish, Romance That Feels You. Radish is a comprehensive romance fiction library penned by talented, popular writers. Bottomless content. One cute app. 
Jen, what are you reading this week? So I really love something that has like a super tropey hook. I am reading The Wedding Trap by Adrian Bell, which has a woman named Beth Bradley at her best friend's wedding. And she has been making up a boyfriend for the past six months. And now it's the wedding. I love it. And everybody wants to meet Charlie. And so she convinces this random hot guy to be her wedding date. And he is actually an ex-Navy SEAL. Hello. Of course he is. Working for the CIA. Whenever I have to find a fake boyfriend for a wedding... It's is, a hot he's Navy SEAL. always a Navy SEAL. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> and I was in the dentist waiting room, and I just, like, was reading and reading and reading, and it is terrific. But it's one of the things about Radish is those plot twists, like, they really know how to sell, like, a real hooky, kind of yeah. fun, interesting plot. And I was sucked right in. I only have a few more episodes to go. <laughs> Well, so here's the deal. When you read on Radish, you read by episodes, and episodes are often free, but sometimes cost coins in order to finish a book. And our friends at Radish have a Faded Mates listener special offer. You can go to radish.social slash fadedmates, and you will receive 24 free coins so that you too can read about fake relationships with Navy SEALs at weddings. (laughs) And uh, that way you can read that book or... Any other book or try one of the exclusive episodic series. And either way, this seems like something that if you haven't tried it and you're out there and a romance reader, you definitely should because it's pretty cool. Thanks again to Radish for sponsoring our show this week. Okay, so I want to talk about that kiss because you're right, Mm -hmm. it's early. Mm -hmm. And so here's the thing. Harriet feels real ownership over these caves, despite the fact that she does not own these caves. She's like, they're mine. She's really pissed off because these people are, like, <laughs> defiling her caves with stolen goods. She's skulking around in the dead of night, <laughs> trying to figure out who they are, which yes. seems really, like, poor judgment on the part of a blue stocking. But, I mean, th- what else? Are- this is a romance novel. Of course she's skulking around in the dead of night. One of the things I love always about the blue stocking character archetype, though, mm-hmm. is that their quest of scientific knowledge is primary. Over all other things. Right? I mean, yeah, I, I want to... Put that on ice because okay. I want to talk about the, I want to spend a little time on the blue stocking as an okay. archetype. Um because I'll I write have it down. many things. Take a note. I'm gonna take <laughs> so, a note. Okay. So Gideon, who is gigantic. I mean oh, of course. Re- reference is enormous and massive on many I mean he's, he's basically like he also has a scar on his face. You he's love a, that I mean, shit. He's you know, a be- he probably total beast he's archetype. my button, right? Like of installed. Course. Anyway, so Gideon does not care at all about fossils, which I love. At one oh, point, yeah. I circled him. She was like, blah, 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 teeth. And he was like, oh, I'm sure that's very interesting. And I circled it and wrote Jen in the margins. Listen, <laughs> I usually am, like, so down with the heroine. But in this case, I was like, everything he had to say about fossils, that was me. Him just, yeah. like, nodding. Yeah, whatever. I support you. So you. it's important to I me. I support you. I mean, that's the joy of it over the, over the whole book. He doesn't care at all. He never comes to care about them. But he cares about them because she cares about them. And right. that's love. Anyway, that's a separate thing. <laughs> so he doesn't care about fossils. He actually doesn't really care about people using these caves for smuggling purposes. No, either. not at all. Mm-mm. He doesn't care about this land. 
He's called the Beast of Blackthorn Hall because he's scarred and they think maybe he's a murderer. I mean, ding dong, that's amazing. <laughs> um, uh, literally, you get to that where it's like, you know, he killed his last f- oh, yeah. fiance, and I was like, I love him. He also, <laughs> like, lurks about in a big great coat. He hulks. I love a great coat. Oh, I mean, God, it just me feels very billowy. If you know anything about Jen and I, I love um, the Tom Hardy <sighs> great coat. We've We've yes. imprinted the image of Tom Hardy mm-hmm. from Taboo in a great yes. coat onto Derek Craven. I think it is, if it were on a moor or a white cliff of Dover, I think we would The great happily... coat family tree. Exactly. It's all here. For sure. <laughs> Some so, of you like overcoats or top coats. We support you. Or vests. But we like a great coat. Yeah. You know why? Because you got to be big as a house to pull it off. And someone's going to snuggle in it later. And that's yeah. all I have to say about someone's that. Someone's going to get cold. They're going to have to use it as a blanket. <laughs> Bam. Okay. So she's skulking about in the in the caves. He finds her in yeah. there. And he's pissed. Yes. Not because she's in the caves banging out the walls, which seems like it might be dangerous, or because she, you know, she might, I don't know, I don't know. Not because she's trespassing in his caves. He's pissed because she's putting herself in danger. She's putting herself in danger. And he, she's like, well, if someone has to do it. Yeah. <laughs> He's Look amazing. A million times in this book, she's like, if you just would have told me your plans, this wouldn't have happened. Exactly. I love a heroine who's like, you're an idiot. I yeah. could have helped. Yes. Um. So he does what any great romance hero would do in this scenario. He decides he's going to terrify her by kissing her. <laughs> He's so big when he picks These her up. These big dummies feet are like kicking in the air, and I wasn't sad about it no, at all. It's no. the best. This He's really huge. Did. He's huge. I imprinted on every part of this book except the fossils. It's fine. Yeah, it's sure. fine. It's because fossils aren't necessary. Fossils are—they're sure. just the thing she's into. Sure. He's in love with her brain because she's into fill in Something. the blank. Yeah. And in this case, it's fossils, and it's so since then it's been fossils. Sure. Um, but here we are. This, I mean, this is really, I think, wh- this is where Fossils comes from. Has to. Oh, yeah. Has to. Oh, yeah. Reading this, I was completely like, oh, yeah. Science heroine, right? Right. Um, so he kisses her to terrify her. And you guys, it doesn't work. <laughs> no. She's not scared at all. In she's fact, into it, she's like, mmm, science. <laughs> <laughs> This is chemistry, I believe. This will need more (laughs) research. (laughs) And so this is great. And then, so there's that. There's that sort of like big hulking man. And this is where I want to talk about blue stocking archetype versus this kind of hero. The hero that suits a blue stocking, right? Because... The cool thing about a blue stocking heroine, and one of the reasons why I think she happens, she starts to happen now instead of prior to this. Mm. Though before this, you know, in those early Garwoods or whatever, there was always like, oh, I know about herbs. Or yes. I know about, you know, they, they had I'm a midwife. Yeah, right. Exactly. But this is a very particular kind of like book. Yes. Yeah. Bookworm science nerd heroine. And when we talk about blue stockings, the DNA of the blue stocking is a character who 
holds science above everything else, like you said, and also who gets knocked back by things that are not intellectual. The physical response to, you know, a massive hero picking her up and kissing her. The, um, The emotional response to when people insult this man who she's only known for like three days. How, and she yes. just kind of starts her synapses fire in totally new and different and confusing ways. And prior to this, whenever a heroine was confused, she was made to seem kind of dumb for not knowing. But the blue stocking is never dumb. Another thing I really liked about blue stocking characters always was. They were explicitly feminist in a way, meaning they were determined to, you know, they were publishing papers. They were, you know, joining societies that Mm -hmm. had been typically run by men. They were determined to be a part of a world. And I would say, you know, you see through lines of this all the way straight through to things written this year by Olivia Waite or, you know, written mm-hmm. by— Tessa um, Dare. I mean— Tessa Dare There or is no Tessa Dare without— Right. I right. mean, when we talk about the family tree, Amanda Quick comes yes. first and really starts to lay the brickwork right. of what these books look like. Yes. And I, I mean, there is no question that Tessa Dare is descended from Amanda Absolutely. Quick. Them taking their scientific principles and applying them to the conquering of society. Yes. So her jaunt to London to polish herself up is like a, a like, this is, well, this is how you do it. So I'm going to go and I'm going to investigate and figure this out. And, and this is how I'm going to conquer this next yes. thing in front of me is by... Using but she's skills. also absolute chaos, right? Oh, because absolutely. she flies in because the the natural state of the blue stocking is sort of not like other girls in these, especially in these earlier books, like mm-hmm. really not like other girls. And so because she's not like other girls, she doesn't really function in society or in a community in the way that the community or the society requires for women, in this case, specifically, to function. So when she is functioning, when she sort of brings her chaotic energy into Mm -hmm. a room or into a cave with a hero, it's so chaotic that she knocks everyone else back. And so when he finds out that she's headed to London, he's like, oh, shit. I better get there. I got to get there because she is going to tear it up. (laughs) And, like, who knows what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is she's going to get kidnapped and brought to Gretna Green. (laughs) It's amazing. What also felt like, yes, it really is. And I love she just, like, sits back. She's like, oh, God, when when will Gideon get here? My favorite is when she's like, this was a mistake. He's going to, he's coming. He's He's going to come. She never doubts him. Mm -mm. Before we go, but one other thing I want to add, though, about the blue stocking archetype here is, or, like, maybe an advancement in the historical archetype of the heroine in these books is even though she's the not like other girls part, she's not a loner though. She has her sister who loves her and thinks she's charming and they get along Mm -hmm. great. And she has her aunt and they have, you know, so I would say 
one way that this is different is, you know, in those 80s historical romances, right? you were the only one, you were literally the only one. Now you're different, but you still are surrounded. There's women in your life besides, you know. Right, and we see this with Jessica Trent and her yes. grandmother. Like, yes. there are, this is the time, you know, where we start to see heroines who have um, careers or passions that are supported by more than the hero. Um, I do also want to say that my favorite line, possibly in the entire book, <laughs> is after Gideon and she have boned in the cave, and then he's like, we have to get married, and then they're talking to <laughs> her family, and she says, well, it's not like I was doing anything with my virginity. <laughs> yep, yeah. <laughs> like, completely. <laughs> and oh, it's so great was- because it's so fun and rompy and chaotic. Yes. And so you're like, I'm in love with this woman. And so, yeah. of course, everyone else in the whole world is going to be in love with this woman. So there are two things that I want to say about him, though, in the context of the blue stocking. One is, I think, one of the joys of this book and one of the things that makes this book so deft in terms of the writing and the characterization is that he seems to just allow himself to let go into emotion for Mm -hmm. a hero who, of course, cannot love. Of course, I mean. Never. Cannot love. I can't even do that. I mean, he flat out says it. I forgot about that. He does. Because she says, will you ever be able to love me? And he was like, no. I forgot how to love six years ago. Absolutely not. Well, none of these idiots (laughs) can love, right? And so, except in this scenario, right, he marches the, I mean, I don't know. There's so many good scenes, but early, early in this book, I mean, I don't know, 30 pages in, 40 pages in, there's a ball, Yes. Or a dance, like a country dance. A country dance. And he turns up, which is, you know, unexpected for everyone. And uh, he marches straight to her because he knows what he wants. And he asks her to dance. Well, before he goes to her, he, like, stops at the band shell, whatever it's called back then, and, like, has a word with the conductor. And then he goes up and asks her to dance, and it's a waltz. Waltz? <gasps> a scandal. <laughs> I forgot about this, too, right? Like, you know, well, how big of a deal Well, because it's real Regency, right? I mean, yes. I will say this. I learned a lot about the Regency from Amanda Quick novels. Oh, completely. Right? Yes. Like, I love how she just drops, she does a lot of, she does several, like, as you know, Bob moments in this book, <laughs> where... You know, she'll say, he's, you know, was he a lord at that point? And it's, the response is, no, of course not. His, he was a, he yes. was second son and, you know, that, and it <laughs> right. would have been a Viscount. <laughs> like, so, and then you're like, okay, that's how titles work. And waltzes are scandalous and yes. she makes sure you know it. I mean, there's a lot going on in here. Uh, Amanda Quick is, is layering, is layering in a lot of the rules of Regencies. And... Really building for a lot of us the code of regencies, the codes yes. that are that become bedrock to historicals. Because again, prior to this, they historicals were more like I don't want to say primitive, but they were like there was a kind of proto. There was a wildness maybe. to a historical prior to this, where it could be that you're in medieval England. And you're about to go into some sort of jousting match and someone's going to get a splinter in the eye. Or it could be 
being wrapped in a kilt in the Scottish Highlands, or it could be sailing across an ocean. But suddenly, with this book and the others that are coming out right around it, they're it's like the walls are being built in some ways. Like Regencies look this way now. Regardless of the time in the cave in Act 1, the, the turn to the ballroom is inevitable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because anytime you have a character who is an outsider to society, as Gideon is, mm-hmm. part of these books is about bringing him back into the fold. Right? And he can't come back to the fold without this woman who's going to suddenly a path appears. Well, I mean, his what's interesting is that he, this is what I was saying about this, this goes back to what I was saying about him giving himself over to mm-hmm. just the universe in a lot of ways. He says in the he cave, says that. he says, I believe in fate. You're my fate. I feel like you've always been my fate. And First of all, swoon. Oh, yeah. I mean, because this man, this sort of immovable, impenetrable, scarred, brutal hero, or we're told, you know, to believe all these things about him, giving himself over to the concept of a faded mate? Yes. Stop it. And how delicious is this when it is paired with science? A perfect knitting of two characters who, so it's, this is a good example, so One of the things I I was thinking about constantly in this is this is a great example of how to do how to how to do conflict with two people who really like each other. From the jump, they like each other. This is really friends. I mean, it's not friends to lovers because they're making out fast. (laughs) But the they like there's no in, no. In, there's no emotional conflict here. Even when he's like, I can never love. <laughs> I'm, you know, broken in all ways. She's like, okay, well, I mean, that's fine. I I can love you. Like, there's something really refreshing about this couple who are, it's, it's me and you against the world. Sometimes you get um, the we have to be married. Like, she, he understands that immediately. The minute the tide comes in and they're stuck in the cave overnight, he's like, okay, well. I under I see it's happening, so we might as well both. <laughs> yeah, which is great. He's like, let me empty out all these sacks so we have something to lay on. Yeah. But she doesn't really realize it till the next morning. But she is also understands the limitations of the world that they live in. And so then it very quickly, instead of fighting the marriage, it becomes how can I be the best wife? Yes, but first, before that. It's, oh, it hadn't occurred to me that if I turn you down, then the world will look at you and they will say, oh, he he remains a beast. Like, she cares for him in that moment. And then later, like way at the end, she says, I've loved you from the start. That's why I let the cave happen. Well, and I think what I what I really liked about that moment is often when we get this, like, we must get married— it's like a trap, and he has no choice. But in this case, they are both taking their responsibility seriously. It's just what that responsibility is is different. Yeah. Right? And I think that's a brilliant way to, like, really, like you said, like, these are, move these characters forward 
in a way that, like, both of them agree to something for their own reasons, but they're, it's so good, right? I mean, I just feel like it's so good. It's just, it's it's partnership from the, it's partnership from the jump, Jen. I mean. And then it's defining the partnership. Yeah, they are working together in support of each other from the jump. Yes. And that, I will tell you, you guys, as a writer, is so hard to do. And it's she makes so it hard to do. So She easy. makes it look like she just sat down and it poured out of her. A part where I really tuned into that was, um, of course, there's like a bad guy. And he, she gets trapped by the bad guy in the basement of the fossil museum. And I, I won't spoil it, but after she is, gets away and is heading home, she thinks to herself, like I could, like she could, she thinks I couldn't, I could, there's no way I could tell Gideon what happened because he will freak out and I'm going to have to keep it to myself. Well, this dummy, I mean, there are just duels constantly. Everybody, <laughs> he's threatening everyone with duels. I might right. add, he has a giant scar on his face because he has, because he was in a duel and he got a rapier gash. So the, so this moment, and I remember thinking like this was, a, it was a really interesting moment for me because I thought, well, to this day, I have friends who have expressed certain things to me. Like, I didn't feel like I could tell my partner this really upsetting thing that happened to me because then I'm doing emotional labor for them. Like, right? Like, this is complicated for women. Yep. Especially when they are in danger. Yep. And 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 so I was really tuned in, like, what's going to happen? And she walks in and kind of tries to play it off, but he immediately senses something is wrong. And she just tells him everything. And I was so happy that she did, right? Like, partnership means you have to tell them. Yes. And then, as a good hero should, he basically offers to bring her the heads of her enemies. Yes. And which is all we expect (laughs) in the world. But she says, listen, I just don't, I don't want you to be harmed. I don't want you in danger. And he listens. Here is a hero who is painted as truly a gothic monster. And then you start to realize, like, he is a truly decent partner who hears you when you speak, which is a fucking gift. Like, that is amazing. I mean, his greatest, his biggest threat to her, he does does none of the, like, I want to, you know— I want to harm you threats of the of the prior heroes of the genre. His biggest threat, and of course, none of those heroes would harm, I mean, you know, once they're in, they're in. But he never makes that threat. The threat he makes is, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to make you orgasm so hard, you're <laughs> not even going to know who you are. And she's like, Oh, (laughs) is that a possibility? And I'm like, wait, is this the first orgasm threat we've ever seen? Like, is this the, is this the the first? (laughs) Well, it was also, okay, I guess we, can we talk about sex now? We have to talk about that first sex scene and the orgasm. Well, she doesn't Or the non-existent one. And I was like, what? What? I was so surprised. He just falls asleep. I mean- Right? I'm so surprised on that, on both levels. I'm surprised. I'm I'm actually really surprised she didn't yes. she didn't come. Yeah. And I'm in no way surprised that he fell asleep. But then talk about communication. This book is like 
a handbook for relationship communication. She says, well, it's fine. I mean, I believe in you. It was, it was okay. hard ground. We were in a cave. You're very heavy. <laughs> like, I mean, like, yeah. she and he in his, we're not in his POV. And the one thing I want, What's I mean, his, he's McCreeve yeah. braining, presumably, of right? <laughs> Static. Static. So sweet. Yeah. Because I want you to imagine this man probably has never had a woman say, that was mediocre. Yeah. And she's not saying that. She's just like, oh, it was fine, but it wasn't, you know. Well, and she's so into being with him. Yeah. And, but still he didn't like, I mean, seal the deal. It, I was amazed And so he's like, it. I'm committed to this new task of mine. Doing better. Yeah. And then he does better. Bless yeah. him. It was amazing. I really was. Look, the sex is great. Yeah. But I, I mean, you could have knocked me over with the, I, she didn't have a ver- uh, I know. Awesome. I know. I know. I felt the same way. I was like, wow. But honestly. But then he does the business and he does it well because she told him. And this is another one of those moments where I thought, well, that's transformative text yes. for so many women. Yes. Reading, like, the idea of telling your partner Mm -hmm. that you did not have a, like, super pleasure in your experience with them, that's a tough thing to do for a lot of women especially, though I'm sure many people struggle with that. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I was really amazed by it. I I complete—and I just, in general, I would say, like, the pacing of it was so interesting. Like, I think— I was like, yeah. He was like, look, we're going to get married, so we're just going to go ahead and do it. And there was no, like, Mel, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe we should wait till 73%. <laughs> no. But also, can we say, I mean, she really handles that great. The marriage piece is so interesting because they're getting married, and initially he's like, I have to go. His father is getting sick for, right. you know, romance reasons. And then, so he leaves her, and as he's leaving, oh, mm-hmm. perfect. She's with her sister in the house, and he comes over, and he says, look, I got to go. My dad's sick. And she's like, oh, I hope he's okay. And he's like, well, he's always been okay before, so don't worry about it. Yeah. And then he says, he sort of looks at her, and he says, I assume you will tell me if there is something I need to know, and we need to get married super fast, i.e. Pregnant. If you're pregnant. And she doesn't, she knows what he means, and she's like, yes, I will tell you. And then he kisses her like, Crazy. Oh, yes. Just, mm. And then he marches out of the room, and her sister's like, whoa. <laughs> I know. Is it was that for real? Fantastic. It really was. So what I like about that is, so then he's off to wherever, mm-hmm. and then he finds out she's in, gone to London, and she writes him a letter that's like, I'm going to London to be a good wife, and uh, also I'm not pregnant. So then, okay, and he's disappointed because he's like, yes. oh, I wanted to marry her fast. He doesn't care about the kids, but he's like, we can fast, get married like, faster, she's pregnant, right? we can get married super fast, and then we can, like, sleep together all the time. I can have her with me all the time. And uh, Very so Reese Winterborn. Mm. Too bad, not pregnant. And then she goes to London, and then he turns up in London, and she's been abducted to Gretna Green by some— you know, idiot noble. Her friends want to save her. Who want to save her, who believe that she shouldn't marry the beast. And so he's like, oh, now I got to go get her on the Great North Road toward Gretna Green. 
and he catches he get catches up with her and then he's like look no <laughs> we're gonna tell the innkeeper we're married and we're getting married yes. and she's like okay okay <laughs> you know what i i loved about this book is and i get that there are reasons that characters can mistrust each other mm. but i loved the trust that she had in him Mm-hmm. And and I loved how important it was to him. So one of the things that, so he's like this pariah in society. And she sort of is like, who cares? And he's like, you would care if you have been through what I've been through. Yeah. And he sort of lists it off, right? Like, my parents didn't believe me, my family, everywhere I go, I can't go into these places. And it's really kind of heartbreaking, all that he experiences. And it really, I thought, was powerful because there's so many times when we see, like, a hero be like, who cares what society thinks? And so when she, at some point, is sort of like, so basically he's been accused of ruining a woman and then she kills herself and everyone holds him responsible. And she was like, Deidre was this woman. Including his family. I mean, he really is alone. Yes. And she's like, obviously, someone else. That was Deidre was carrying someone else's baby. He never, ever, ever would have left a woman like that. And what she's basing that on, and this I thought was really important, is look at the way he has treated me. And instead, we've talked a lot in some romances, it's kind of like, well, this man is good because of the way he treats me, but I don't care how he treats other people. Mm. This is the opposite. It's, this is the way he treats me, so I know that he would never treat anyone this way. Mm -hmm. Like, does that make sense? Yes. And on top of it, he thanks her. He's just like, there's no, and it's not like, oh, thank you, no one's ever believed in me. It's like a moment where he sees... They see each other. He's like, oh, I see that she sees me. And thank you. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for believing in me. And you didn't need evidence. You just knew me. Yeah, and it works both ways. And there's a moment where where Amanda Quick actually flags it in the text. And, I mean, I don't know because I wasn't in romance discourse, (laughs) you know, when this book came out, right? But there's the— the moment, so they're on the Great North Road. He comes running up behind the carriage because he's, you know, a superstar. There's a whole thing on the road. He pulls her out of the carriage. Um, he he basically, he, he challenges the people who abducted her to a duel. She says, no duels. It was just a misunderstanding, she yes. says. <laughs> right. And, you know, Everybody, the biggest complaint that we have in romance is, well, misunderstandings. They're so silly. Why didn't people just talk it through? And in that moment, I realized that in the hands of an an alpha from the 70s and 80s and early 90s, like first, I mean, I guess this is the early 90s, but 70s and 80s, um, he would have said, you must want to go. You yeah. must have wanted to go with them. I'm angry with you. I'm angry with you. And I and them. Or he would have misplaced his anger with them on her. There is a misunderstanding. She says there's a misunderstanding. And of course what she means is, oh, well, they weren't really. I wasn't. I certainly wouldn't have married him. I mean, this wasn't going to end up the way that it ends up in a novel. <laughs> you know? But in in that moment, using that word made me really 
ping what the misunderstanding in that moment could have been, which is you must want to go and then we're in a fight. Or also that this idea that they can't understand us. I understand you and you understand me, but to outsiders, and we say that a lot, like you can never understand anyone else's relationship Mm -hmm. or you can never understand anyone else's marriage. And there's all these moments where we see like the outsiders looking in, wondering how these two work, but we as the readers see how these two work. Mm -hmm. And it really felt like a prime example of like the glory of romance to me. Like this is what I want, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is why I read it because I like just want to see it working. Well, it is two people in a phone booth. Yeah. In in a lot of ways. I mean, there are a myriad people all over, Mm -hmm. but these two characters are just together and they're, it feels like you're in their little bubble with them. It's really glorious. Yeah, I like that, you know, he wasn't perfect. Like, there was a way that he, like, a couple times he sort of, like, shows her off to everyone. And her sister is like, he's showing you off to everyone. And she's like, well, I don't like that. But she tells him, right? Or there's a great part where she gets so pissed at him that she's going to decide to Decides to give him the silent treatment. I mean, listen, I laughed. (laughs) And he's like, oh, I'm sure this will last. (laughs) Right. Where, you know, there's like a great scene where like, you know, someone else like is like the anger translator. But I laughed so many times in this book. This book was so charming. It's delightful. This book is literally like, like it is, I reading this again, I was like, no wonder I love this. No wonder I love this. Yeah. No wonder I still love it. I mean, I really, now I want to read all the rest of them. Oh, God, yes. I want to go back to, the other one that I really loved was Scandal, and I don't remember why I loved it. I just, like, I remember that was the one I read over and over and over again. And then, of course, she also did, she's the, um, you know, the precious text writer, too. The, you know, precious book is yeah. the MacGuffin. I mean, these are, they're all MacGuffins, that's Absolutely. what the issue is with you. When you say fossils, that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about, so in in a lot of stories, I mean, this is a really common storytelling mm-hmm. function, right? Where, um, or, or a storytelling trope, I guess, where, you know, there's a quest or there's um, a heist or there's a thief on the page. Mm-hmm. And they have to, so if you, you know, if you put a thief on the page, they have to be stealing a thing. And the thing that they are stealing is kind of often when we say, when it doesn't really impact the story, or it doesn't matter that the, what the, the item doesn't matter. It's just, it could be anything. We call it a MacGuffin. And so fossils are a MacGuffin in this. It could be, I mean, but you don't feel that way because they're so richly packed into the blue stocking character. Mystique, yeah. But like, truthfully... Harriet could have been interested in anything. She could have been interested in, I don't know, botany. Right. Well, I'm sure one of the other ones is. <laughs> I've written a character who was interested in botany. So. I'm sh- sure. I mean, I have a dead orchid in my house, whatever. <laughs> I <laughs> used fossils in a Twitter thread once to talk about the difference between, like, essentially, like, when are, what... I think the ultimate question for me is, like, what I am interested in is characters. I'm not interested in fossils. And so sometimes I think what authors are prone to do in in a in a book like this is mistake how much 
work-related whatever it is. It's info dumping. Yes. And I don't actually want to learn about fossils. I mean, this whole time she's, like, really obsessed with, like, a a, a fossil, a tooth she found. <laughs> Her tooth, my tooth, my tooth. Mm-hmm. At no part in the book do we ever discover what the tooth is. She finds some big fossil at the end. I didn't care. Like, I didn't actually ever want to read her papers about the tooth or what mattered, Mm -hmm. right? Like, none of that mattered to me. And so, and I feel bad because I think— I mean, I don't think you should feel bad because I don't think Amanda Quick wants you to care about the fossils. I think Amanda Quick wants you to care about Harriet caring about the fossils. And that is because you are Gideon, I mean, you, Jen, really are Gideon, but the, I mean, uh, me too. The fossils are there so that we can see Gideon care about the fossil so that— Because he cares about her. To show that he cares about Harriet, right? It's it's Winterborn with the orchid. I mean, it's Reese Winterborn doesn't give a shit about orchids. No. But he cares about Helen. And, and so he learns about orchids. I mean, I think I took some flack for it. Because people don't, because Twitter is stupid. Literally no one is saying your book is bad if your characters like fossils. Or, I mean, we've just done an hour of talking about this book that we both adore. That's not what you're saying. What you're saying is, is that sometimes writers get in the weeds about fossils. Yes. And I will tell you a story about my own writing. Good. Which might help you. Tell me everyone, to understand that Jen is not saying don't write about fossils. I wrote a book called Eleven Scandals to Start to Win a Duke's Heart. And in it, there is a infant. An infant is born. It's not a relevant. It's, it's, it's not a useful infant. It's just an infant. <laughs> I mean, later in a future book, she's important. But in this book, she's not. And the hero, who is, you know, a stuffy Darcy-esque character, stumbles upon this infant in, you know, the course of the book, and this infant is having its diaper changed. And it was 2011 when I was writing it, and I was like, well, let's learn about diapers. Like, what does a diaper look like? What do we call it? How does it work? When do they change? What do you do? Whatever. I learned, like, three days. I did three days of research on, you know, the history of diapers. (laughs) Packed it all in there. Because, I mean, sure. Well, I know it, so you must really want to know it. (laughs) Also, there's that instinct as a writer to say, like, look what I learned. Yeah. Delivered the manuscript to my editor, who very delicately circled the entire two pages where I talked (laughs) about diapers and just crossed them out. Yep. Because it's fossils. Like, because when you write a romance novel, you know, you don't, nobody needs to know. So it's a really, it's like a characterization issue for me. And I think the thing that I... Yeah, what mattered was that he stood in the room while the child's diaper was being changed, which is not a thing he ever would have done before that moment. And I think that that's why, like, I, like so when I, we talk about fossils on this episode, or we're talking about actual fossils, but we talk about fossils on the podcast, we're talking about times when non-essential information takes over for characterization. And that's the thing. It's like, I don't, I mean, and I would also, one of the things I've noticed is that it tends to happen more when the characters are women because it feels like, and I've seen it happen on Goodreads, where people are like, 
well, how could this person, like, you have to prove Look, this woman is a professional or whatever. That's so real, too. She knows her Excel spreadsheets, but Christian Gray could just sit in an office, yeah. and we are told he's a billionaire, and we believe it. I wrote a heroine who ha- owned a business, yeah. owned a shipping business. She is in her office multiple times yeah. over the course of the book, and I got so much criticism that she didn't work enough. We never saw it. And I was like, how much more time in an office do you want? <laughs> the answer is none. You want none more time in an office. And that, I think, is like an ultimate, like, I'm not saying I don't care about women's work and the things that are important to them. What I am saying is you don't need to prove to me that this woman knows her business. Yeah, trust that the heroine knows. I don't need that. And I don't, often I don't care about it, right? I don't, no offense, but everyone else's job is kind of like. I will say this, this is definitely used, right? This is how you can tell the difference between fossils and fossils. <laughs> the, in this particular case, Hattie, no. Harriet. Harriet. <laughs> in this particular case, Harriet is into fossils, right? She's been chipping them out of a wall in the cave. She's used a hammer. She knows her way around a hammer. And at some point, she has to use that hammer on a person. (laughs) And here's the thing. In that moment, you're like, ah, that's why Harriet has had fossils this whole time, right? Because she needed at some point. I mean, I don't think this is like she needs to hammer someone in the head, and therefore, what could it possibly be? Like, she could be a carpenter or be into fossils. But more importantly, like, it's all tied together. It's stitched together in the writing of the book. Harriet's into fossils. At some point, she's going to have to defend herself. She's obviously going to have to use the hammer that she uses to chip fossils out of the wall. And that's a moment where it all seamlessly, you know, threads together. And you think, oh, that's great. It doesn't feel like fossils. When a gun is fired, it reveals some fossils for her. Great. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, and so that's it. It's It was interesting. I, I think it's interesting what authors feel like they have to prove to their to their readers maybe it's not conscious i don't think for most of us that we pa- we pack in all the info especially in historicals i don't know i don't i don't write contemporaries but in historicals we do so much research and you found something cool and, and then you, you find something cool it, right? like you know how um, an indoor swimming pool in the 1820s would be filtered <laughs> And then you write it all into a sex scene. (laughs) And then you think, gosh, that doesn't seem like it should be there. And then you, like, pull it all out because all that really matters is that this hero likes to swim because he, you know, has a dirt problem. But the, the thing is that the info dump is something that I think historical writers have to deal with. I mean, I, I info dump in every manuscript. And then I hope I pull it all back. Pull it back. Enough. Uh, there's no, but there's no perfect way. There was one part here that I did really like that was clearly, like, researched, right? Which mm. is she's in, when she's in the museum. Yeah. She sees that he has been, like, sold a fake fossil that's, like, pinned together. hmm And it's, but it's, like, one sentence where you're, like, okay, now I guess I learned a little something about how people fake fossils. Yep. Fine. And I'll tell you what, I would guess that... There is a lot on the cutting room floor here. Absolutely. Because it's clear Amanda Quick knows about fossils now. 
How sad for her. I mean, and we know this from her. I really loved her book, um, her most, I haven't read her most recent book, but I think it was like the first book in this new series, which is set in the 40s in Hollywood or the 30s Mm -hmm. or 40s in Hollywood. Um, And I really, really loved it. And part of why I loved it was because it just felt so richly researched. Like there was so much peppered in there. And right now, historicals are going through a tough time, right? There's a lot of this push-pull of, like, historical accuracy. How much do you put in? How much do you not put in? Um, you know, and I do think there is a there is a, a delicate balance between boring your readers, for lack of a better—I mean, that's harsh, but real—and and also making sure that it's it feels like the research is there and the historical piece is correct. Look, I love this book, but I will tell you what, like at the end when she like wrote her journal about whatever she discovered in the cave, there was like no part of me (laughs) that was curious at all about, I was like, I was like a dinosaur, a crocodile, something, I don't know. You're a Philistine. That's what the problem is. I am. I'm Gideon. (laughs) Oh, I have a couple follow-up things. I don't know if you do too. Yeah, yeah. One other thing that was really deeply interesting to me about this book is it was a true standalone. None of the secondary characters become characters in future oh, books. really? Felicity doesn't get a book? I do not think so. Yeah. Right? And I think that now that that would have happened, I think all of these, from what I remember, were not really related. They weren't trilogies. They were, And I guess that makes sense because if they're blue stockings and her sister isn't one. Um, so I, I just thought that was kind of interesting that they are— they're like related thematically, but not. Yeah, that's interesting. By characters. So I just wanted to. That was the other thing on my list. That's fascinating, especially because at the time that wasn't what was happening in historicals. I mean, we were families and friend groups, et cetera, were all just squarely happening yeah. all the time. I mean, this is right when, I mean, Derek Craven has a connector book, Lisa's writing books that are all connected. The Lawrence books, the the Sinster novels are all like. Well, those were later, though. This is 92. It's more like Garwood. The Montgomery's, the Mallory's, the Westmoreland's. So I just wanted to throw that out. It there. is interesting because there are these sisters. Yeah. It's ripe for, and I think now, if this book existed now, an editor would be like, no, the next book is Felicity. Absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if they dance by I was wondering that like too. I wonder if Gideon and um ha- Harriet dance by In future books yeah um by the way I didn't I didn't say this then but it, the book that I um really loved oh it's not an Amanda Quick yes it mm-hmm. is it's an Amanda Quick <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's labeled Jane Ann Krentz, but the title, the name on the title is Amanda Quick. So I will say this. The book that I really loved of, of Amanda Quick's most recently about Hollywood is called The Girl Who Knew Too Much. Mm. One last thought. I, again, I mean, I think I said this last time or when we talked about this book. The other thing I vividly remember when I read these books was like how hard she was working <laughs> to really make like the least sexy name seems sexy especially for the heroines like it was like harriet and you know i don't know like oh they all had names well they had like blue blue stocking names yes like i literally remember being like these are not the names of romance heroines 
These are, you know what I mean? Like Harriet. I mean, bless you out there to the Harriets, right? But I just remember being really thinking like Prudence. There's one called Prudence. Augusta. Right? That these were, like, she was really leaning in hard to. Well, to be fair, this is also historical, a real historical moment where these are real names. You know what it reminds me of is, I think I mentioned this once, I interviewed Vanessa Riley. Who said she keeps a list? I love that story of like men's names from this time, and she is like determined to use them, even though they are like one was like Busick or whatever. I love right? it. I yeah. love it. Yeah, it's great. It is great. Um, yeah, I just I don't know, man. This just reminded me how much I love historicals. I really do. This I know. book is but. Nanas. It was great. I mean, it just takes off like a shot. And then we're in caves with smugglers, and then we're having sex while the caves are flooding. And then there's, you know, Gretna Green and 52 duels and stolen people and gunshots. And it's wild. It is wild. And great. It honestly is all I want. Yeah. I just want every book to be this bananas. Well, Bombshell. I mean, I feel like you're really returning to those roots with like your new series, right? I mean that that is the hope, right? That I just yeah. I just want it to be fun. I want it yeah. to be fun like this. Yeah. And the trick is, I mean, I really feel like rereading all of these Amanda Quicks is a good job for me mm-hmm. for work because it feels like what she does is she really creates two characters who care about each other, who are falling in love. It's so emotional. The sex is so good. Like, all of it feels like a roller coaster. And then on top of it, there's this just to-the-wall plot. (laughs) It's wild and really, really fun. So if you didn't read it, if you're one of those people who listens to the podcast without reading the book, do yourself a favor. Did you listen to it in audio? No. Is it good? I don't I know. Didn't. I just, I, I, you I mean, know what? I will say, I I didn't look. Sometimes books, it's really interesting. We've talked about this before. Um, sometimes books were recorded a long time ago. Then they they haven't been re-recorded. And I feel like um, sometimes you can really tell that they were, I don't know, audiobooks have come a long way. This audiobook is 13 years old, yes. so it might be. They used to just be readers, and now I feel like we're getting, like, voice actors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're doing voice. And so I cannot speak to this one in particular, but I have found that um, sometimes they re-release them and they're they're better. So, All right. Well, Random House, that's Jen <laughs> asking you to have Mary Jane Wells. <laughs> Mary, Mary Jane Wells, everybody. Listen, Mary Jane Wells. Oh, my God. God, please. That would be amazing. Listen, I listened to the, to the tavern scene in oh, yeah. Bombshell, because I was curious as to how you read that out loud. And Nailed wow, she did, great. Great she, she did a great job. She did a great job. I was like, this is good. Who wrote this? <laughs> oh, Sarah. Anyway, I'm so glad you liked it again. I loved it. Uh, everyone, you are listening to Faded Mates. So, uh, Jen, next week is a another Trailblazer episode. 
Yes. Um, a good one. Some yeah. Nisha Sharma texted <laughs> us. I just I'm I'm outing Nisha. Um she um Nisha Sharma texted us and was like, who else is on the list? And we said, No, no, it's a secret. It's a secret. And literally, I don't think anybody knows the whole list. No. There are a couple people in romance, obviously, who have to know the list because parts of the list people, because we right. need them to help mm-hmm. us. But um, but it is a secret, and it is a secret because we want you all to be as excited when we announce them as we were when we heard from these people yes. saying, "Let's do it." Um, so that is that. There will be no list. We are collecting your ideas. <laughs> people are DMing us with yes. who they think. They should be. And I will say some of you are already going to be very happy. Yes. Um, That said, we have a Trailblaze episode next week, then an interstitial, and then we are reading Hana Khan Carries On by Uzma Jalaluddin. Um, And it was one of my favorite books of the year. So exciting. You can find us on Instagram at Faded Mates Pod and Twitter at Faded Mates. Um, at our website, fatedmates.net, you can find information in show notes. You can find links to all kinds of merch, um, our previous episodes, transcripts, and pretty much anything else you are looking for. Um, we hope you have a great week and that you, you know, learn about some fossils, read about a blue stocking, or wear a great coat. Have a good one, everyone. <laughs>